Good evening. Good evening. It's very great to be here. Very excited for what uh, I've got planned to talk about tonight and glad that you could come out and hear it and be part of what's going on. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, band. Give the band a clap. Why don't we give them a clap? Great job, guys. All right. So in the last two weeks, Jesse brought the word and he brought us some very incredible, interesting videos which are about arguments for the existence of God. And they're an extremely important foundation for what we're talking about today. So if you didn't see any of those, I recommend going back, looking at the videos, getting an idea of the foundation of what we're doing today. It's really important. But today, get ready for us to step a bit deeper into why we believe what we believe and a bit deeper into the truth. Can everyone hold up a T for me for truth? Yeah, because you can't say it to your neighbor, you see. Well, I don't know, maybe you can. All right. So, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went on a camping trip. And they had a nice meal, followed by some wine, and quickly went to sleep. In the middle of the night, Sherlock, uh, Sherlock wakes to a draft, and he shakes Watson awake and says, Watson, Watson. Watson says, what is it? And he says, Watson, what do you see? Watson says, I see the stars. Yes, Watson, but what does that mean? Well, theologically, it means that we are so small compared to God and he is very creative. Uh, astronomically, it tells me what month of the year it is. Um, if I think meteoro meteorologically, it tells me what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. No, Watson, someone stole our tent. You like that one? Because obviously they're sleeping outside. Um, this uh, nice joke that I just shared is kind of going to help us step into investigating tonight. So can you put on your Sherlock hat tonight as we go investigating into Jesus, into Christianity? And that's what we're doing tonight. We talked about is God real and then Tonight's message was titled, So Which One? I think we got that there. So Which One? And tonight, I, I want to talk to you guys about Christianity. I want to talk to you about different religions. I'm really excited to do that. But how did I get here? Why am I interested in this stuff? When did it all start for me? If you've known me over the last few years and you've had dinner with me, I've probably brought up something like this and talked about um, evidence or arguments or... Um, things about God's existence or Jesus and that sort of thing because I'm so passionate about it. You know, I was brought up a Christian, like a lot of people here probably were brought up as a Christian. And I never really doubted my faith growing up very much because it was so much part of my life. And I remember at a young age, about 10 or 11, I was sitting in church going, man, I could never disbelieve in God because it's so real to me. Because I, could, I saw what was happening when my parents would drag me along to church two or three times a week. I would see what God was doing in the lives of people and I saw it was transforming lives. I'm like, how could anyone doubt this? But nonetheless, as I got a bit older, when I was about 17 or 18, I actually began to um, you know, look at some videos, read some things on the internet, look at that. And I actually came across some very intelligent people very smart, who didn't believe in God. And I thought, wow, these people are really 
intelligent, but they never believed what I believe. I thought anyone who had a different belief was stupid. Has anyone had that thought before? You're allowed to laugh. There's no law against that yet. Oh, that didn't even get a laugh. Okay. So I thought to myself, wow, there's these really smart people and they don't believe what I believe. And it got me thinking, got me questioning some things. In fact, I heard some one-liners from atheists that actually kind of challenged me a little bit. And they go, have I actually checked what I believe truly? And I remember going through a period of doubt, and it wasn't an intellectual doubt as much as it was an emotional doubt. And, and you have times in your life where you go, you know, is God actually doing anything in the world around me right now? And I remember going to the shower like you do in your most depressed states because shower thoughts can be the most clear thoughts. And I went to the shower, and, and just in there I thought to myself, what would life be like if I lived as if God was not real. And that was the most terrifying five minutes of my life. So I continued along this journey of investigating this. And you know what I said to God? I said, God, if you're real, I want to know it more than just emotionally. I want to know it intellectually. I want to understand why you're real. I want to understand um, the way the world works. And I got very passionate about this. And what I came across was really incredible. As I began to do research, my faith was strengthened more and more than it ever had been. And I wasn't filled with this sense of doubt anymore, but I had a backbone to my faith. And one thing I realized is that Christianity is not on the back foot in terms of evidence. It's actually not. It's the other worldviews that have to answer for the evidence that Christianity actually has. And tonight... We're going head, head, head first into the evidence for Christianity with our Sherlock Holmes hats on. Well done, Solly. Okay, so I'm going to put up some questions that we might have all asked before. So first question is, how can I know which one is right? This is religions. We've got um, Judaism. We've got Christianity. We've got Islam here, and there's a few other religions. Well, from Jesse's arguments, we can actually, actually narrow it down quite a bit. For one, there are some religions that have lots of gods. That's called polytheism. And they actually don't make sense in a philosophical argument. Because how can you have multiple, infinitely great, uh, powerful beings? You can't actually. There has to be a one beginning point. And so they don't really hold up in that sort of argument. And that's why you don't see many people believing in the Greek gods and, and that sort of thing today. But Hinduism is one of those religions we also, uh, it also means that pantheism can't be true. And pantheism, uh, people, it's, it's the belief that everything we see and around us is God. So you might say, I'm God, you're God, this tree is God, we're all God, brother. And it doesn't actually make much sense either because essentially you're not giving an answer to how the world began. You're not giving an answer to why it's finally tuned the way it is. You're just saying that everything is God. And essentially, it's pretty much atheism with a different skin, if you know the Fortnite language. So another question, oh, so with those, are with polytheism and pantheism out of the equation, we're actually only left with a few religions. And they're the three symbols we got here. 
And these are the Abrahamic monotheistic religions. Just to make it less confusing, it means they've got Abraham and they've got one God. So we've got Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And um, we're going to investigate this further today. But these are the, the big three, and I think it'll be really interesting. Another question is, don't you just end up believing what your parents taught you to believe? I remember when I heard this, and, and when I first heard it, I was a bit speechless, and I had to think about it for a while. And maybe you've uh, been told this by someone before. You just believe that because your, your mum and dad taught you what to believe. And you know what? It's the most offensive thing you can say to me. Because I'm like, you're just assuming that I've never thought about what I believed before. And the truth is that some of the most incredible Christians, uh, Christian writers, Christian speakers, grew up atheists or they grew up in another religion and they discovered that it didn't hold up. It discovered that there was no true hope in that and they came to Christianity. And they didn't just believe what their parents had taught them, they thought for themselves. And I encourage you guys to think for yourselves. And another thing is when people bring up this objection, you go, well, do you just believe that because your parents taught you that that's what you should believe, that you only believe what your parents believe? That's a bit confusing, tongue twister maybe, but it doesn't quite make much sense. So we're going to go to the third question. What if they're all true? What if all religions are true? Oprah Winfrey made this view quite popular. It's called the New Age Theory, and it's the idea that every religion leads to truth somehow. Sounds so nice. Sounds great. But the problem is, by definition, truth is exclusive. Meaning, if something claims to be the truth, then everything else can't also be the truth. And when Jesus claimed that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he counted what a lot of other religions said. He actually counted New Age, the idea that every religion is true. And when he said the only way to the Father, that is God, is through me, Obviously, other religions have problems with that. And the people who go, well, Christianity is so exclusive. Can't you be a bit more inclusive? Well, those people who are inclusive are exclusive to the exclusivists. So no one is really all inclusive at all, just to make that a bit confusing. Okay, so why Christianity? That's what we're looking at. Why Christianity? Christianity to me has been not only what I grew up uh, being, but it has been my purpose. It's in my origin. It's been the reason I do things the way I do it. The reason I married this beautiful woman. It's been an uh, all-encompassing part of my life. And tonight I want to share it to you. It all revolves around this one Jesus guy. Miracle, miracle worker guy. You guys seen that video? Well, you should. Let me... Um, deviate a little bit and talk about pavlova. Now, I'm not just hungry, but who doesn't love this iconic Australian dessert? Pavlova is a great seasonal delicacy that we have around Christmas time. It's meringue, cream and fruit. Um, it's light so you don't feel bad after eating it and you can convince yourself it's healthy. Meringue has a lot of countries that actually claim, or Pavlova has a lot of countries that claim it is their own. Believe it or not, the Kiwis actually claim that they own Pavlova. We got some Kiwis here? Oh, come on, guys. Well, there's actually a great, um, there's, there's a tension between 
Australia and New Zealand in this department. In fact, the real debate is whether we keep them in an esky or a chili bin. No, just joking. But, you know, the debate has gone back and forth. People have put many hours into this. But do you know that pavlova is actually Russian? The word pavlova is Russian, okay? And it's actually named after a famous ballerina, Anna Pavlova, who this dessert chef knows very well, firsthand. She died in 1930, so you're not that old. Okay. Good job, Meredith. But uh, Anna Pavlova, she toured the world, and in fact, lots of dishes were named after her, so the Russians like to claim it. So we've got three countries right here. But do you know that the first actually recorded dish called Pavlova is found in France? It's called Frog's Legs Pavlova. You see, because she was quite a charismatic and extremely skilled ballerina, many chefs would want to name their dishes after her, or she would insist that they did. And in France, in about 1910, we find frog's leg pa pavlova. So we've got four countries kind of claiming the pavlova for themselves. But Germans came out and they said, well, actually, we've been making meringues for years. So in the 1850s, they brought meringues to the shores of America. And so we've got six, six countries right here already claiming to have the origin of the pavlova, but the meringues weren't quite to the pavlova stage that we see here, nor, did they, nor were they attributed the name just yet. But it was the Austrians and the Hungarians that said the Germans learnt their technique from us. So now we've got, I think that's eight countries all laying claim to this beautiful dessert. There was a cookbook discovered in 1911 with the words strawberry pavlova in them, discovered in New Zealand. This was, at the time, the earliest recorded words, strawberry, strawberry pavlova. But there was two problems with this. There are two problems with this. Firstly, Anna Pavlova didn't visit New Zealand until 1920. So there's something a bit sus there. How did they get to name this dessert after someone who they hadn't seen or heard of? And the other problem is it's, it's actually not a meringue base. The, the base was actually ice and gelatin. So it, that's why some New Zealanders claim it as their own. But I'm sorry, guys. The earliest recording of the recipe we know and love today is found in 1924 in Queensland, Australia. I'll just get the band up now. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. Okay, why, why do I say this? Well, every country wants to claim pavlova because it's so good. And in the same way, every religion wants to claim a bit of Jesus. Everyone has an idea of this Jesus as part of their religion. The Jews say that Jesus was a great rabbi, that he uh, you know, was a bit controversial over his time. I Islam actually says that he was one of Allah's prophets just before Muhammad came. And then uh, the Buddhists actually claim that Jesus achieved nirvana. And then the atheists claim that he was a really great guy, you know, taught some good things, love your neighbor, the golden rule, that's awesome. Uh, but he didn't actually claim to be God. And this is all well and good, but is it true? You know, that this person, Jesus, is without a doubt the most inspirational, well-known, famous figure in all of history. There is no doubt. And we know for a fact that he lived 2,000 years ago. He was crucified. He was buried in a tomb. His body went missing. 
and people claim to have seen him after his death. We know these things without a, without a shadow of a doubt. So we're going to delve into what we know about this Jesus. So everyone agrees that Jesus was white, wise, not white. I don't think he was white. I don't, know, I don't know what he looked like, but he wasn't white. Anyway, everyone agrees Jesus was wise and taught many good things. But many say, skeptics say, that doesn't prove he was God. Fair enough. That doesn't prove he's God alone. But there's something that doesn't quite add up in what they say. Because if Jesus was a wise and good teacher, the things he says don't actually point to him being a wise and good teacher, if that is all he is. And we're going to look at this a bit. I'm going to go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, if you'd like to look at it. This is a really incredible chapter of the Bible. And in this chapter, Jesus says some very controversial things. So in chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, he's there teaching and all of a sudden some people bring down a, uh, a, uh, le- a, a um, disabled person from the roof and um, a, a lame man. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. He says it to this man. And the Pharisees say, in verse 7, they say, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And we might look past this a little bit, but let me give you an illustration. Suppose Solomon punched you in the face, Rico, and then he proceeded to punch you in the face, Elijah. And then I said, all right, calm down, everyone. Solly, I forgive you. It's all good. I forgive you, guys. All right, so you're going to let him go. I forgive you. You would want to crucify me because it's not my right to forgive in your place. It's up to you, and you probably want some justice before you're willing to forgive this guy. But this is exactly what Jesus did. He forgave somebody in, uh, in replacement of other people that he'd probably wronged in his life. And they thought, who can do this but God alone? And that's right. Who can forgive someone else on your behalf but God alone? And that's what, God, that's what he was claiming. He said, Even though he sinned against others, first and foremost, he sinned against who? God. And I'm going to forgive him. That's the claim he made. Really incredible. And that's why why he was crucified. He was making claims like this. Now, in uh, 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 verse 13, chapter 2 still, uh, some people come and they ask, why is it that John's disciples are fasting, but Jesus' disciples aren't fasting? What's going on? And Jesus replies, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They can't, so long as they have him with them. And you might glaze over this at first look, but think about this. When you fast, maybe you fasted before, fasted food or movies or whatever, who is that fast between? It's between you and God, and no one else should come between that. You know, in the New Testament, even Paul says, the only reason you should be separated from your wife for a short period is to fast with God. Because he says the only relationship more important than a husband and wife's is with God. But then you've got Jesus here saying, oh, no, it's all good, boys. Don't fast. It's all good. I'm here with you. The claim he was making is that I'm God. You don't got to fast because I'm right here. You don't have to fast to get to God. He's right here. And the Pharisees that saw his, that 
uh, heard this. They knew what he was saying. And that's why it led to Jesus' crucifixion. They were ready to kill this guy because he was blaspheming in their eyes. He called himself Lord of the Sabbath, the, the Lord's Day. I am Lord of the Lord's Day. How, how more explicit can you get? And in Mark 14, 6, 2, he says, You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And there he's quoting Daniel saying, I am going to stand and sit beside the Father in heaven. I am the Yahweh who sits beside Yahweh. That's what he's saying. And then lastly, in Mark 9.31, he says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Somehow the disciples didn't quite understand what he was saying here. I'm going to die. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again. And who can claim that but someone who is either crazy or God? And C.S. Lewis, the way he puts it is, he was either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. We've obviously lost something. That's okay. So Jesus could not have just been a good guy. He couldn't have just been a wise teacher because of the things he said. You hear about other wise teachers, Buddha and Confucius and all that, and they don't claim to be God because they realize how ridiculous that would sound. But Jesus comes along. He teaches some good things, but he teaches in the eyes of many some ludicrous things. And he says, I am God. So he's either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. Now let's establish which one he might be. So once again, there are five facts that we know about Jesus beyond a reasonable doubt that he lived that he was crucified that he was buried in a tomb that his body went missing from the tomb and lastly that people claim to have seen him risen there are five facts they were established by a guy named Gary Habermas for the minimal facts argument because he wanted to take things that everyone agreed upon and show what the truth was. So I'm going to go through four theories as to what happened when Jesus was killed. So we've got an empty tomb. It might pop up, might not. No, it probably won't. And um, Jesus was buried in a tomb, right? And for three days, he lay there. So if we're doing a real investigation of the evidence, all we need to account for is three days, 72 hours. Am I right, quick maths? No one even confirms me. Yeah, there we are. We've only got to work out what happened in those three days. It's like when you listen to those crime reports and they're like, we just need to know what happened in those 13 minutes so we can work out what happened to little Jackson, you know? But in this case, it's three days. If we know what happened in these three days, we know whether Christianity is true. So here, we've got a theory called the legendary theory. And skeptics came up with this theory that, oh, we've got an empty tomb there. It's blue. Jesus, uh, they came up with this theory that what happened must have happened is when the original people wrote the Bible... The new, the, old, the new Testament, they wrote the Gospels, they must have passed it on to others who edited it a bit, and then they spoke it to other people, and then it 
edited it a bit and they changed parts of the story. And over time, it became more and more legendary. It's like when, um, when your granddad does something awesome and then he begins to tell people and all of a sudden that awesome thing just becomes ridiculous because he hams it up as he tells the story more and more. You all know a guy like that. Am I right? He's probably sitting next to you right now. <laughs> so we've got the legendary theory. And the idea is that when the Gospels were written, it's believed they were written Mark first, then Matthew, then Luke, then John. When they were written, they became more and more, uh, they began to define Jesus as more and more Lord, more and more God. But actually, you might have seen what I did a bit earlier. I was a bit sneaky. I only use scriptures from Mark which we can date to about 60 AD, 30 years after the death of Jesus, to show uh, that Jesus was divine. You don't need all the other Gospels, even though they're, they're still true. You can show this just with the earliest document that we have. And we have relative certainty that what was first written in Mark in about 60 AD is what we have now in our Bibles today. And some will try and argue this uh, with lots of different arguments, but we actually have documents dating at about 100 AD of the actual scripts that uh, they had back then. And that is incredible by archaeological standards. So we can pretty much know with certainty. We also know that legend, when your stories get progressively more strange, they can't happen in a few years. They take, they've done studies on this, and it takes about 200 years for a legend to form. So that theory doesn't really add up. We've now got another theory. This theory uh, is the most vivid for me. It's called the conspiracy theory. We've got, have we got some conspiracy theorists here in the house? No? Was COVID a, a government scheme? Some people, yeah, there are definitely conspiracy theorists here. Okay, the conspiracy theory. And this theory is that what must have happened is when Jesus died in the tomb, the disciples who were distraught but wanted to keep the message going thought, well, let's take the body and then claim to have seen him risen. Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, all right. I'll be here. You'll be there. Let's do this Ocean's Eleven style. And you can just picture this now in, in the Gospel of Matthew. We actually see that there were Roman guards placed out the front of the, temp, of the tomb and they put a a Caesar's seal on the door, meaning if you broke that seal, you would die. And you can just imagine the disciples now swooping in uh, just before the third day at midnight. Oh, look, it's come up at midnight. And they get past the guards. They knock them out. Somehow the guards were unaware of what happened. Then they take the body. Then they, they, they bring the body um, out. And then they dress up one of their own to look like Jesus and when the people start to say, oh, what happened to the body? They say, well, he's alive. Look, he just appeared right here. And quickly Thomas is getting dressed up. And uh, he looks like Jesus all of a sudden. So that, that's the idea of the theory. But it's got some serious problems to it. Because firstly, the disciples, many of them suffered and died for what they believed in. And it's not very often that someone dies for a lie. But it's very often that people die for what they believe actually happened. The disciples went through horrible pain. They also didn't have anything to gain from this. They didn't gain women power or money from lying about Jesus. In fact, 
their lives became much more strict and they had and they had to leave their jobs behind for this calling. There was no gain in that at all. And uh, they died for what they believed in. And you might think, well, don't other people die for what they believe in? Well, the disciples were in a unique place where they got to see firsthand the life of Jesus and then they got to see firsthand his resurrected body. And they were willing to die for that. And we have good reason to believe that Peter was crucified just like Jesus. And why would he ever do that for a lie when he could simply say, it's a lie, I made it up. So that theory doesn't hold up. There's another theory called the swoon theory. Believe it or not, this is actually a popular one. The idea of the swoon theory is that when Jesus was on the cross, the Roman guards must have gone a little bit soft on him. And he somehow endured this uh, this, uh, crucifixion. By the way, the word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. And that is because we needed to describe a word for the amount of pain that someone felt when they were being crucified because it is unparalleled by any other experience. And so Jesus somehow lives on this crucifixion and then he's put in the tomb, but he's in a bit of a coma. And then when they come and put spices on his body, this is what you do to burial bodies, apparently the aromas of this woke him up from his slumber. He awakes in the tomb. He rolls back the 200 kilo stone or whatever it is and then walks past the guards without them seeing, rolls back the, t- the stone appears to the disciples and they're all amazed at what they see. Now, this theory sounds pretty good, except the fact that no one ever lived through a full Roman crucifixion. It just didn't happen because the Romans were were trained killers and they knew and they could identify when someone was really dead. And if someone lived, then they would get in a lot of trouble. They'd probably be killed themselves if they didn't do their job properly. Also, if Jesus had lived through this and appeared to his disciples, it would have been so clear that he was a defeated Messiah because of the wounds that would never go away and the, uh, his ability that would be so tampered with. But as we read in the Gospels, he doesn't appear as this defeated Messiah. He appears as this almost renewed Messiah and he has no... Uh, He has these scars, but he's not crippled in any way. So this theory just doesn't line up with reality. The last theory I'm going to share today is the hallucination theory. This one's pretty interesting. And the idea of this one is that after Jesus died, the disciples, so upset with what happened as they saw their friend killed on the cross, that they began to have bereavement hallucinations. They began to see things. All of them at the same time saw what they believed to be Jesus before them. And Jesus spoke to them. And then they were convinced that what, that, that hallucination was real. So then they went and proclaimed what they'd seen to the world. But there's a few big problems with this once again. Firstly, there has never been a record of mass hallucinations ever in the whole world. You just don't get hallucinations. Hallucinations only happen isolated in someone's brain. You can't have a shared hallucination. It's like if I was having a great dream like I was in Hawaii 
And, and then I, I woke up and said, oh, Beth, um, go, go back to sleep. Let's have a, I'm having a dream that we're in Hawaii. Come join me in Hawaii. And then we go back to sleep. And you can't do that because it's an isolated experience. That's hallucinations. And the other problem is, is the body would still be in the tomb. And the Jews could very easily say, Christians, what are you talking about? We got the body right here. But they don't do that. In fact, what you read is that the Jews say, well, the disciples must have stolen the body. So we know the body was missing. So what do we do, guys? These are actually the four strongest theories amongst skeptical scholars today. And you might be thinking, well, I can think of some other theories. Well, they're not the ones that, these, that, that the skeptical atheist scholars hold to. They're holding to these other ones. They're trying to just hold to any straws they can because they know if they can't hold to something, then Christianity is true. But, you know, I do know of one other, other theory, and that is that he actually rose from the dead, that there was a resurrection that happened. And you might think, this is crazy. People don't just rise from the dead. I agree. People don't naturally rise from the dead. But if God is real and God is personal, is he able to do that? He is. And if Jesus predicted that he was going to die and rise again, does that owe some credibility to the evidence that we see? It does. He was like a witness statement of what he was going to do. It's like prophecy. And we see Jesus prophesying that he was going to die. In fact, to skeptics, he said this well before he died. He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. If you know Jonah really well, he was Jonah and the fish. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Greek word is shoal, meaning the grave. And he's saying to these people, I'm not going to show you any more miracles, but I'm going to give you one sign, and this is your chance to believe it or not. And I believe he said this for us today as well. The Son of Man is going to be in the grave for three days, and then he will rise again. And what is astonishing is that the best evidence we have for Christianity is so good. And that is that Jesus was in the tomb three days and then he rose again. Christianity is not on the back foot in terms of evidence at all. I want to read you uh, a bit of a story about um, Billy Graham. So Billy Graham, uh, is, he's said to be the greatest preacher of the 20th century. He, he passed away a few years ago. And uh, he has a, a meeting with... Um, German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer. Adenauer was a former mayor of Cologne and he was imprisoned by Hitler for opposing the Nazi regime. He later became Chancellor of the West German Federal Republic. He deserves the title of statesman as he picked up the broken pieces of his country and helped to rebuild it in a fractured world. On this occasion, he looked at the evangelist, Billy Graham, in the eye and said, Mr. Graham, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Graham, somewhat surprised by the question answered, of course I do. Then the Chancellor replied, Mr. Graham, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. 
And this is a man who had seen the evil, depravity of the world. And he had realized that no other religion provides the answers to the hope that that what they need, that people need, only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is their hope. And this is proven true again and again through my life. If Jesus really rose from the dead, as he said he would, proving that he was indeed the Son of God, and that he had come to take away the sins of the world, and that everything that came from his mouth is true, then he really is the way, the truth, and the life. And Christianity is true, by the way. So what about other religions? Well, Islam doesn't provide salvation. You have to earn your salvation. In Judaism, they're still waiting for a Messiah to come. No other worldview makes sense of these facts. But Christianity has proven true under all scrutiny, under being poked and severed. The Bible holds up. The message holds up. It is still relevant today, and it is still extremely powerful. And today, we are seeing more revival in the world than ever before. Maybe not in your neighborhood, but in third world countries all over the world, they're realizing they need the hope that is in Jesus Christ, for there is no other hope for mankind. John 1.12 says this, Yet to all who receive him and to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This scripture you might have looked over before, but it's pretty simple. If you receive and you believe, you become a child of God. Maybe you're a bit like me tonight and you grew up and you received Jesus at a really young age and you love God, but you didn't actually come across this evidence or anything till later. So your belief wasn't like grounded on anything. And you, you, you received first, then believed. But maybe you're here tonight and you've, you just now you've heard some evidence. You've heard the case of Christianity and you think, well, maybe I believe this. Maybe I'm actually willing to go, I believe this. Well, if you are willing to receive Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, he came to heaven, and today he is still with us. Because that's the truth. If he rose from the dead, he's still alive. That's the great hope we have. Then you will become a child of God, which means you're going to be part of God's kingdom forever. You're going to be in heaven. You're going to have his Holy Spirit with you, walking beside you. If you believe and you receive, you become. Last thing I'm going to leave you guys with is uh, a, a quote from um, the book, The Case for Christ. Now, in this book, uh, it's about a guy who goes searching to actually try and disprove Christianity. And he interviews uh, these really well-spoken Christians philosophers, historians, and scholars. And he comes across this one um, guy named J.P. Morland. And at the end of their interview, J.P. Morland's been quite convincing. And J.P. Morland, just as uh, Lee Strobel, who's the author there, he's about to leave, J.P. stops him and, and says, don't you think that the evidence that is being provided cries out for an experiential test just like 
if a jury were willing to hear all the evidence that someone was guilty, but they weren't willing to say guilty, that doesn't make any sense. But the evidence for Christianity cries out for an experiential test. Meaning if Jesus was real, then he can be felt, he can be experienced tonight. So I encourage you guys tonight to cry out for an experiential test. To say, Jesus, if you're real, I want part of you. I'm going to pray and then we're going to wrap up. And then we're going to probably sing another song at the end. But I'm going to hand over to Bethany in just a second. But I'm going to pray. And if you want to receive Jesus, maybe you've thought, wow, this evidence is convincing. I might believe. But maybe you want to take that a step further and say, I want to have the experiential test. And I want to, I want to know what this is all about. Why don't you stand up for me, with me right now? And I'm going to pray. And if you believe... If you, want to, if you want this prayer, you want to pray this to God, I encourage you to pray it in your heart. God hears everything. And he knows that you're here right now. He knows your problems. He knows that you might have come with some baggage, but that's okay. He's cool with it. And right now, you may be, your whole life might be changed. The tra- trajectory of your life could change forever for right now. So I'm going to pray. And if you believe this in your heart, I want you to repeat these words. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner and I'm undeserving of the reason you came for me. I want you in my life if you are true. And I want my life to be forever changed by you. I'm not comfortable with the way I was before and I want what you have. Would you give me that experience of knowing you personally, of stepping out just beyond the shore and being taken into your love and experience you personally? Have everything I have, God. And if this is real, I want everything you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, It was great speaking. I'm going to hand over to Bethany.